Hello, everyone. Following the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protests, much of the world once again is discussing the issue of racism. The protests have been successful in bringing to the forefront the concept of systemic racism. This concept tells us that racist structures are deeply embedded in every segment of social and political life. And this includes even progressive institutions or self-defined as such, such as the debate community. In this series of interviews, we want to explore how racism manifests itself in the debate community and what the community can do to dismantle these structures. We're incredibly happy and honored to have this conversation with a wide range of knowledgeable, insightful voices. And today I'm therefore speaking with Nolutando Honono. Thank you very much for being here. And um, Nolutando, can you give me a bit of a background uh, on yourself? How did you come to debate? What have you done thus far? Sure. Uh, so my name is obviously Nolutando and I am a South African debater. Um, I've debated for a while now and my first undergrad I did debating throughout and I'm now doing a second undergrad degree and I'm, going to, I'm doing debating through this one as well. Um, I started debating as a high school speaker actually. Um, this was as a result of one of my teachers just not being very, um, she wasn't okay with me being a shy person so she thought it would be a good idea to get me speaking um, because I tended I used to run away from oral presentations and miss school because of it so she had to find a way around it and that's how I ended up being a debater fell in love with it and it became a sport that I kind of enjoyed because I didn't really enjoy any other sport um, I now coach um, as well as speak and adjudicate adjudicate more than I speak though <laughs> Mm, yeah, I think eventually you'll make that transition. Certainly, uh, I've noticed uh, being a shy person myself, I feel much more at home being a judge and offering sure. judgment at the end. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, in 2019, uh, the World Championships uh, came to South Africa. And um, at, like during that competition and afterwards, I think a very large discussion centering on making the World Championships more equitable sprung up. Uh, and the... Uh, African community wrote a um, uh, wrote a uh, document suggesting large amount of, re of uh, reforms for greater inclusion. Uh, could you briefly summarize uh, what those what those ideas were? So a number of these ideas were conceptualized by one of our um, South African debaters, Jamie, who in that time felt as though there needed to be some sort of reform that happened um, to allow greater representation of African teams within um, World University Debating Championships. He had written it prior to that. Um, it just happened to get a lot more attention at that time because of the discussion that was happening at Worlds. Um, what it basically speaks to is a couple of mechanisms that we can utilize to just bring in a few more teams. So it includes things like getting cheaper accommodation so that we can um, lower the registration, uh, finding ways to be able to get winners of regional tournaments like SANUDC, West Africa University um, Championships, to Worlds through giving them a slot that they can use to get to Worlds. Same thing for PAUDC winners. That way, we're able to ensure that we have a greater representation of African teams. This also includes possibly starting a francophone um, side for this particular tournament because it is anglophone, and obviously Africa is separated into two 
with the um, francophone side and the anglophone side so it's a lot more difficult for the francophone to be able to access worlds um, or access debating in general because it means that they need to then assimilate and learn how to speak English or utilize English as an effective mechanism of communication, which is not easy. Um, you also included things like the possibility of a levy um, for universities that are far more privileged to allow those universities to be able to assist those that are not and maybe grow those numbers as well. He spoke about how in terms of the teams that are represented, most of them are from South Africa and of those that are from South Africa, they are from the previously white institutions who are in fact more privileged than all the others, which essentially means that you still don't necessarily get any real representation of what the South African debating circuit actually looks like, even at the point where they do get to world and become representative. Thank you, yeah. And I think what was very striking in the document uh, is that it's very clearly highlighted just how few teams from Africa are able to make it to championships like worlds uh, uh setting its proportionate to its population uh there's a there's a need a very strong underrepresentation. now what i think is also interesting is that when many people certainly from countries like myself i i live in the netherlands when we think about racism we often think about it as an interactive effect or a moment where there's like discrimination or people treat people this differently on the basis of their skin color but what this document centers is that also there are more structural economic barriers uh, and this is then also seen in a, in a racialized light. Would you be, have to be able to comment on that a bit further? Absolutely. So taking it in a South African context, a lot of what has happened in South Africa from the point of getting to democracy, as it's been put, to where we are right now, has shown quite a bit of structural issues that have caused for there to be major problems in terms of the way in which uh, things like the distribution and redistribution of wealth works, how people are able to access particular things. And this is the same thing when it comes to debating as well. So essentially what it has come down to is which universities and institutions are willing to fund debating, but more than anything else, which parents and families are willing to fund debating as well. So essentially what it ends up being is who can access the kind of structures that allow them to be able to gain the necessary support to be able to get to these tournaments, to be able to even get the kind of training that is necessary for them to be able to make a difference when they get to, the, to those tournaments in the first place. So you'll have a lot of institutions, for example, like the University of Cape Town, being able to access worlds at a far greater rate as what would happen if you were talking about Walter Sisulu University, which is in the Eastern Cape. Um, and in the instance where something like that does happen, or those institutions do get there, because of things like language barriers, because of things like not being able to effectively communicate a lot of the thoughts that they have in the language, they're unable to then effectively do what is necessary for them to even win or make an impact in these particular tournaments. A lot of this is very clear when we look at um, the number of teams that have broken at Worlds and how far those teams have broken at Worlds when we're looking at how these people speak, um, what they generally sound like, even at the point where we're not talking about their argumentation, but their ability to be able to communicate those languages in that language specifically is what then makes a difference to whether or not they can access and then succeed within the tournament. 
Okay, wonderful, thank you. I think one of the other things when I read the proposal that I think was very uh, well argued is the nuances of representation and indeed that, for instance, local communities are best known to know the context and to know which teams would most benefit out of receiving those resources, but also suggesting that the brunt of the cost should be paid by those institutions who could both afford it, as well as including a redress principle, namely that some institutions are more likely to have benefited from the consequences of colonialism and therefore it is fair to redress them as well. Now, I, I guess that if we talk about certain redress opportunities, certainly people who are in the more developed sphere might have some counters. They suggest, for instance, that other underprivileged groups um, also might need access to this kind of funding, or they would say that they themselves uh, may find it harder to pay uh, a higher uh, amount of money. Um, what, would the, what would your response to them be? So essentially, this has been um, the response that a lot of this has, that it has received from the council um, when it comes to this particular issue. And truly, there are always going to be responses to this type of thing. And there's always going to be a reason why we cannot do it, quite simply because insofar as conversations about privilege happen, individuals who happen to form part of a particular privilege don't necessarily always that that privilege exists until it's pointed out to them. But more so than anything else, they also tend to be very resistant towards accepting that privilege as being true. So essentially, when it comes to this, it means that they, we need to start interrogating um, how far those very um, privileges extend. Because if you can bring in seven teams to Worlds, or you can um, get six slots um, for teams and for five slots for judges, it essentially means that you're getting in far more than what any African team or any other team from a disadvantaged space is able to do, which means a single slot shouldn't be all that difficult for you to not necessarily utilize or to give to another team that would be needing that um, in those particular instances. I think in this particular instance, the problem is not necessarily one of not being able to. The problem is one of wondering whether or not it is a sacrifice that people are willing to make or a sacrifice that individuals are in a position where they can take an actual decision to do that. So it's not a question of can we, it's a question of do we want to. Very good. Yeah, and I, I would imagine so that if we are already speaking from people who, uh, as 20-somethings, are able to afford or have their university able to afford a relatively large expenditure, then adding a small proportion to that expenditure so that people who otherwise genuinely wouldn't have access to it, um, that that type of framing, I think, is very important to take into account, certainly because of all the benefits that you highlight. This has to people who come from communities, but otherwise there would indeed be no opportunity. Um, as you mentioned, uh, council has not necessarily responded thus far in a very positive light. Uh, do you know what has happened with the proposal since? Uh, has it been discussed uh, in the 2020 edition uh, in Thailand, for instance? Well, there were conversations around um, possibly restructuring the proposal in such a way that it met um, particular requirements by the council and the constitution. Um, there hasn't really been much conversation around it since. I do think that there is quite a bit of conversation within the African circuit to possibly revisit it and um, make the necessary amendments and then um, propose it once more um, with the necessary amendments at the next installment of um, the World University Debating Championships. 
I, I really hope that that can happen. And maybe then there's a benefit uh, if indeed the tournament has to move online, which might still be a reality, that this would allow a stronger African voice to take part in, in those conversations. Um, that also brings me to a part of the proposal which suggests voting reform. Um, and the voting reform, if I summarize correctly, is to move more towards the idea of one country, one vote. Whereas nowadays, you receive more votes if your uh, country has historically attended worlds more often. Other recent proposals to address voting reform have actually focused on receiving more votes for countries who are more represented in worlds. And this proposal then runs counter to its intuition. Um, what is the necessity for one country, one vote as a system? So when it comes to worlds particularly, um, the access to worlds is very, very specific. It's as a result of being able to access universities that are at a position where they can fund these types of things. It's as a result of countries being able to accept debating as a sport. It's as a result of how far a particular grouping has progressed and so far as they recognize debating a lot of African states are still in a position where we have to debate it with um, universities and push institutions to get to a point where they're willing to fund even local tournaments. So at the point where the ability of individuals to vote is based on whether or not they have a history of being in World University Debating Championships, essentially means that a lot of these African countries are not going to be getting the kind of voting power that is necessary for them to, able, to be able to ensure some level of reform within council that places them in a position where they can have the necessary impact to allow that, firstly, that access, but beyond that, to allow us to get some level of leverage when it comes to even other things that exist within the space. So a lot of conversation around the language policy and how that works are things that African countries specifically need to have the ability to have a say on because those things affect us more than they do a lot of different other countries. Those include other minorities that don't speak English as a first language. So we want to be able to access those things. And in order to be able to access those things, it needs to have some level of voting power. The only way to do that is for there to be a single vote for each country represented. Yeah, I think that's very powerful indeed. Believing that Worlds should uh, aspire to become a truly global tournament rather than simply perpetuating those who can currently access, uh, I think is a uh, very worthwhile endeavor. And it really does sound like this principle would fit better uh, with that aspiration of Worlds. Um, you've mentioned language categories a couple of times. Um, so as you point out, it is uh, obviously very much harder for people who haven't grown up speaking English uh, to speak uh, in English at a competition, and that should obviously be recognized. What do you think is currently failed uh, by using the English second language and the English as foreign language categories at international championships? So I think there isn't necessarily a particular fail when it comes to the categories themselves. I think the fail begins when we place a high level of prestige on the first language speakers and that particular um, category of the tournament as being the one that we are looking to have people see at the end. So the final is the open final and all other finals are just there because, well, we need to have language representation, so let's do it. This is a clear indication when we're talking about who is world's champion, um, because the only teams we talk about are the teams that are 
in the open final and how they've been able to do that. The problem with this is not necessarily that people aren't paying attention to all the other finals. It's quite simply that even in terms of the way in which we organize these tournaments, the very last final that people are going to watch is the open final. And that's the final that they're going to remember. That's the final that they're going to talk about for a very long time. Essentially, I think what the biggest problem is, is the level of prestige that we give to one that we ought to give to all of them. And we ought to give them the same type of recognition, even when it comes to the way in which we interact with them after that point. These individuals are world university debating champions and ought to be treated as such, even at the point where they don't fall within that particular category. Um, the categories themselves and the way in which we interact with um, how we place people within those categories might also need a little bit of um, work because I do think that to some degree, the way in which the system of placing people within those categories is set up is not necessarily one that is cut out to, to allow even for some level of movement between them such that you're able to ensure that individuals who don't necessarily fall squarely within one are still being able to um, you're still able to ensure that you cater for them as well so though the categories are good in theory there are a couple of things that do need a lot of assistance and a lot of work to ensure that we're getting the best sort of catering for every single individual's individual or team that is going to be speaking at worlds same thing with adjudication i think Adjudication training, though really robust and really good when it comes to world specifically, I think countries as well need to start having um, conversations about how they um, structure adjudication training, how that adjudication training works in terms of what we bring into the tournament itself, and what that means in terms of personal biases, what it means in terms of um, personal issues with being able to understand particular accents, because I've heard this a number of times and it's quite scary and how we accommodate those types of problems in a way that allows us to not disadvantage individuals that wouldn't otherwise fall within the category of what we consider to be normal. Very good, yeah. And I, I indeed have often seen that the ELL, ESL finals, they're, they're a little bit open spaces. I think that the, the, the current approach, which is that occasionally someone uh, shames or pushes their contingent to watch those finals as well, is clearly inadequate. And I think it's very good that you highlight that uh, more explicit and even formal uh, suggestions should be made to make that more inclusive. Obviously, not only non-white people, but also some white people do not speak English as their first language. Sure. Um, do you feel that this is then an effort of a, of a sort of curb cut effect where these people would also benefit? Or do you also think that there's a particular uh, extra set of advantages for non-white people who struggle with, with an English language barrier? I think in this particular instance, when it comes to language specifically, it's something that would across the board be able to advantage individuals in a way that we can all appreciate. Because I think there are some instances where struggles are in fact the same to some degree, and we have to be able to accept that as being true. In the instance where we're talking about language, there are non-English um, speaking white individuals who would benefit from this. And this is something that we think in, when it comes to language is a win for everyone because it's something that's important. It's something that requires some sort of level of work so that those individuals too don't have to necessarily have that as being a barrier of entry when it comes to world university debating championships. And that's important. Um, I think it is okay to have similar issues with 
a single body and it's okay to have different ones as well. And however, the problem is how we address them and whether or not we're willing to address them. So at the point where it affects, it, it advantages everyone, I don't see how that could be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Very, very good. Um, you've also mentioned uh, previously that the francophone uh, sphere currently finds it more difficult and one of the solutions could be a francophone world. I imagine similarly how the Spanish-speaking world has now with Simude uh, and Eva uh, has uh, achieved a secondary world and also um, that the Pan-Americans uh, runs both a Spanish language and English language debate track. Um, would you want to elaborate a bit more? So how, how would you envision structuring this, for instance, alongside the World Championship Tournament? Should this be a separate uh, Francophone tournament? Should it be run coincidentally? And uh, do you think that there is a reason why we haven't seen a, a large French world materialize yet, even though it is one of the most spoken languages in the world? So I think one of the biggest issues in debating is mobilizing and ensuring that you can get people into a single space doing the same thing. Um, this was very clear at um, Cape Town, WUDC, and how that played itself out in terms of the way the final happened and it happening in a different venue to where everybody else was and all of that mess. So I think the reason why we haven't seen a Francophone world is not necessarily that there aren't people who could um, be part of that. It's quite simply that we haven't gotten to a point where it's a conversation that we have had and have been able to mobilize people towards. I don't think it needs to be a separate tournament. It could even be a tournament that happens um, at the same time as the one that we already have. That is an easy norm to create. It's not one that needs to particularly move to a different direction. Um, however, because we haven't gotten to a point where that is a favorable or popular conversation, it hasn't sort of taken up any sort any steps to moving towards becoming something. And I think um, the Spanish worlds that you mentioned would be a fantastic sort of um, benchmark for how that could be something we utilize, how we could move towards that, um, and how we could start to create a more inclusive um, World University Debating Championships, because that is necessary. It's something that we need to do. And I think to a large degree, it's something that makes a difference to the way in which the community that we consider to be progressive actually gets to a point where it's not just about the fact that we make really great arguments in debate rooms about being progressive, but actually takes the necessary steps to become progressive as well. Yeah, I think that's a very wonderful suggestion. And we already, of course, see that there are some uh, extra tournaments added on top of Worlds with public speaking, with masters. So there definitely Absolutely. should be room for, for at least starting it out. Uh, I often feel that what happens in the World Championship is that we think it needs to happen at, at as grand scope as Worlds, but making headways and progress into it, allowing for a smaller francophone World Championship as a experiment next to it, or making these kind of approaches could definitely be useful. And also what I've seen in Europe is that uh, the Spanish language speakers have definitely helped uh, are definitely helped by Simuda, but even we see when they come to the Anglophone sphere, they become a lot more successful. So we have seen the first Spanish teams breaking at the European Championships who've had previous success at Simuda. Um, so I think it's a wonderful, wonderful suggestion there. I think our discussion thus far has focused a lot on creating a more, more equitable space uh, in the institutions that govern uh, debate itself. But I imagine that within debate itself, there might be issues that need to be addressed as well. Um, so Often we talk here about situations surrounding implicit biases and how they manifest themselves into debate rounds. Would you be willing to explain a bit how you see these happening? 
Absolutely. So I think there are a number of things that are that cause for those types of biases to have a position in which they play themselves out in debating. So there are a number of things that we learn as individuals and have maintained for a very long period of time and have had no reason to interrogate them and as such have no reason to unlearn those things as well. So for example, um, Catholics in a Catholic motion, um, being on the opposite end and having a judge who's Catholic may mean that you end up not necessarily being able to win that round because their own biases, their own understanding of the Catholic Church comes into play when that type of discussion happens. The same thing to someone who may be homophobic in a debate that is pro um, the LGBTQIA plus community and how far their own biases extend. And it's these things are important. We're not having the right conversations when we're doing things like ad training because we're very comfortable in the idea of not pushing certain boundaries, not forcing people to accept certain ideas because we don't want to be insensitive. However, it's important for those types of biases to be directly responded to in terms of the way in which they affect the debate itself. So we're not trying to get people to change themselves, but quite simply to understand how far their own biases then extend when it comes to their own adjudication. The same thing can be said about um, accents and how far that extends itself. Because I've heard it a number of times, I did not hear what the speaker was saying, so I can't give them, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to listen to in a deliberation when someone says they couldn't hear what a speaker was saying because the accent got in the way. Uh, that's why you have YouTube. You need to start listening to different accents so that you can be able to pick up particular things and be able to judge. That's how you go to World University Debating Championships because you have an expectation that the people that are going to be there aren't going to be speaking in the same way that you do. And as such, you need to be able to cater for things like that. So those things are important. These are things that need to be addressed in a way that allows us to be able to ensure that we're doing the necessary things to assist all individuals. I think things like the debates that we're having for exhibitions for adjudicators can't be debates that have happened in, at the previous worlds, for example. You can't have the open final being the debate that you're going to use to check if adjudicators are able to adjudicate. It needs to be a debate that's going to have a Spanish-speaking individual, somebody from Africa who speaks Igbo from Nigeria. Those individuals who often are not heard because of the, the way in which they say particular words, so that you can see how far that extends with adjudicators. Because the way in which we're going to respond to that is going to determine whether or not those individuals are going to be able to judge those individuals effectively. So a large number of things need to be taken care of here. Even the way we judge male adjudicators, I mean, male speakers, um, in a team, in a mixed team, often what will happen is that the male speaker will get higher speaker scores than the female speaker, not necessarily because they were better in the speech, but simply because it just is the norm. It's become normal for us to assume that the male speaker builds the case or the male speaker is the better speaker than what the female speaker is. And that's not the way it actually works in teams. More often than not, the speakers are either equally in, um, 
as good or one is just better in a particular round than the other and you need to score them accordingly so a lot of these things are training um a lot of them come down to ensuring that you're doing and taking the necessary steps to be a better adjudicator same thing with speakers there's a certain level of um disregard for particular teams because you don't think that they're on your level or a particular disrespect when it comes to the way in which you address them so those things are also very important those things need to be addressed those things need speakers to start doing the necessary introspection when it comes to how far they extend their own disrespect and their own biases and why then in those instances they need to not act on them because it really just makes the sport a lot less interesting yeah, I think that's incredibly important. Obviously, what happens is that most often the best speakers on a circuit end up becoming the chair judges in a round. And these are then very often also the people who are least likely to have personally experienced those and have an eye out for these kind of issues. So so bringing that to the fore in training, I think is very good. And I do indeed see that training nowadays very often focuses on getting like the call right or like how to track or flow debates, how to like remember the arguments quite well. But looking at these type of behaviors and how to influence debate, I think definitely deserves a lot more attention in that. Um, do you also think that this means that this is a plea for looking carefully at more diversification in the judging pools at tournaments? Absolutely. I think the same can be said for CAP as well, because to a large degree, what's been happening with outcores is that someone who's won worlds or is said to be a really great speaker is automatically assumed to be someone who can be on an edge call, which is not necessarily the case because there are some individuals who have not been speaking, but are really great judges who have an understanding of how judging has worked over the years, why there are problems within judging and how we can fix those problems heading towards worlds. And a lot of these people are often overlooked because we're not giving them the necessary um, sort of acknowledgement when it comes to their own ability to assist the um, chief adjudication panel. The same thing can be said about speakers who don't necessarily get to a point where they are the winners of World's University Debating Championships or the winners of really big tournaments, but are able to do the necessary work to assist in ensuring that speakers like them who don't get to that point aren't necessarily disadvantaged in the middle. So I think there needs to be a lot more um, sort of diversity when it comes to the judging pools. This is inclusive in terms of the way in which we pick IAs. The same thing can be said about um, edge cores and how those edge cores function, because I think it's, that's something that's really important. And insofar as we're talking about um, very specific ways in which training for adjudicators happens as well, I think we need to start looking at the other avenues before beyond the technical things that we're looking for. But what is it that really gets to the core of adjudication when it comes to the way in which people interact with debates as they happen? Very good. Um, you also mentioned, of course, that the, uh, this is also behavior from speaker to speaker. Um, very often when we have this type of incredibly impolite behavior, we suggest that we tackle that using strong norms surrounding equity and using equity officers. Do you feel that they are equipped to handle this issue or should we enable them in other ways? To some degree, they are. I think there's also, there, there are a number of issues here as well, because I think we tend to assume banter sometimes. Mm. 
And we also tend to assume that it's a debating norm to do certain things. And I think it makes it very difficult then for equity officers to apply particular rules because it's the debating norm. And I think we need to start creating a new culture when it comes to debating because I think that there is definitely space for fun in the tournaments without necessarily being degrading of other individuals. So to some degree, yes, I think that they are able to do what is necessary in a round where somebody does find that to be um, offensive. But I do think that the creating of that norm has made it difficult to be able to respond because in a previous round, someone would have acted the same way and it would have been funny. And in a different round where somebody doesn't necessarily take that kind of like behavior as being funny, then it becomes, it creates very specific blurred lines where you don't quite know where to interact with a particular issue. So I think we need to start creating a new culture as debaters of being able to respect one another, even at the point where we don't necessarily feel like we ought to be in the same rooms. I think that's very good. It, it, it sort of mirrors the discussion that happens in Dutch society where the blackface caricature of Black Pete is defended often by people who say, but this is an innocent child's friend. Um, but obviously, if someone comes up to you and say that they feel deeply distressed by this type of figure, it feels very impolite to then wave away their concerns. And I imagine similarly, if your response to it is uh, to someone feeling very aggrieved by something, is to say it is just banter, rather than recognizing that you made an error and that you might need to apologize for that, and that that apology can come at no cost to yourself, but it's just a very human thing to do, I definitely think is, is a very good norm set that we should try to encourage through conversation going forward. So I think that's very, very good. I think that the framing of large amount of this conversation has also been surrounding like world or international or global debate. But I imagine that this is equally, if not as more important on individual circuits itself. Do you feel that the South African debate community is taking a large amount of suggestions on board or is there room for improvement there as well? There is definitely going always going to be room for improvement when it comes to South Africa specifically. And this is not because we're resistant to change or because there are particular forces within debating that seek to make it difficult for disenfranchised groups to be able to access them. No, it's simply that there are institutional issues. um, There are particular issues surrounding things like the planning of tournaments and who best is allowed, who ought to be best to get those tournaments running and things like that. So we've had several issues with either tournaments running really late or tournaments running over budget or all sorts of other things that have caused this particular grouping to have problems with running the SA and UDC on an ordinary basis. So last year we didn't have one because um, the university that was meant to host had protests that were happening and as such they were unable to host it. So those types of things come into play which make it difficult for us to be able to effectively run SA and UDC. However, um, when it comes to the community itself and how the community interacts with itself, I think it's a far more open society. We've kind of sort of all become friends somehow and it's also just created a very interesting dynamic for us in the sense that um, when things happen, it's easier to call them out um, as well as deal with them in that moment to get beyond that point. So I think 
those things exist. Of course, we have our own um, issues with individuals who are to some degree resistant to the change. However, they are quite minute and as a result, they are easier to deal with because we're able to effectively respond to them at a particular time at a given moment. Mm -hmm. um, we also have our banter issues, but <laughs> that's something that mm -hmm. I guess most um, circuits have. And we've kind of moved to a point where we've moved away from that to sort of create a situation where even young and new upcoming debaters are able to enter and stay within the debating space without feeling as though they've been um, removed because of the kind of things that individuals say to them. So we've tried to some degree to create a very safe space um, for individuals to exist within beyond the institutional issues, beyond the fact that money can be a problem, beyond the fact that language can be an issue. Um, and I think one of the best things we've been able to do is to train, is to have um, individuals who have trained for a very long time when it comes to things like adjudication, being able to train the rest of the new and upcoming debaters so that we don't have to deal with um, adjudication issues that can be taken care of, that can be responded to, and therefore ought not be an issue in the future. I think this sounds very compelling and strong. I can't help but notice probably one of the uh, ability to do that is because there is such a frequent interaction where non-white debaters are able to both have a strong enough contingent present and that can communicate also to the white participants as well. And I think that's also a very good echo to say that we do need strong non-white representation at a global level. Uh, I need to look carefully at uh, communities where they aren't as well represented. Um, I'm struck here in particular by my own country where I think the, the, the amount of non-white representation is far lower. Uh, but also where uh, the, the white population by and large believes in a version of what the anthropologist Gloria Becker calls white innocence, where we believe to already be quite progressive uh, and woke per se. Uh -huh. And it actually paradoxically means that they're less recipient to criticism because the feeling is that we have been doing enough. Um, so I feel that these type of very frequent conversations sound very important. True. So I think this a similar thing is happening in South Africa as well, where white people have begun to sort of move towards this stance that we weren't there during apartheid, we weren't there during colonization, and so we can't be the problem. And we've done enough to move beyond that issue by moving the government towards a more democratic system, which is quite interesting because the system itself simply allows individuals to vote and it simply allows them to be able to vote in a particular government, but it does nothing to change any of the lived experiences of these individuals to become better, which essentially means that there's no real progression beyond just the ability to get to a voting booth. And that can't possibly mean being able to get to a point of those necessary reforms. So I think even in South Africa, we're beginning to have very, very uncomfortable conversations about how race and class are intertwined and why that intertwining of race and class essentially means that there needs to be a lot more action from individuals who fall within a particular race, fall within a particular class, and why that's something that they need to interrogate for themselves. So I think it's 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 a widespread thing um, that needs 
a lot of interrogation that needs a lot of uncomfortable discussions to be had, even by people who are very, very comfortable in their privilege. Very, very good to hear. And I think I think that also echoes us back to the earlier discussion that we do see, for instance, that economic cost is a factor that needs to be taken far more on board from an anti-racist perspective. I think that's very important. Um, we're, I think, nearing the end of the interview. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you feel is very important to mention still? Um, okay, just one particular thing. I think as debaters, we've moved towards creating some level of... Um, progression. So we're looking at things like the queer forum, we're looking at things like women's forum. But I think we need to get to a point where in our progression, we no longer need those forums to exist for these groupings and individuals to be able to access a certain level of freedom within the space, or even to be able to access um, competing in a way that is equitable, in a way that is fair, in a way that is going to um, effectively be able to recognize their talent, do what is necessary for them to be able to progress within that space. And I think these are the steps that we've taken to get to that point, but it's time that we began to move away from the complacency of those things existing, but to getting to a point where we're working towards where there's no need for them to exist because those groups themselves no longer feel like a disadvantaged, marginalized group within the space because then that's the only measure of progression that we're actually going to have at the point where we no longer need them. I think that's very good indeed. Like I've, I've seen the us in existence, uh, but I, I feel that unless you're really part of the, the governing bodies of worlds, if, if you don't attend council, it is very rare and intermittent that you actually hear the results of these councils and feel compelled to action. So someone myself who is white and male uh, and does identify as queer, but isn't necessarily to engage in that community. Um, it would be rare for me to hear the outcomes of these kind of talks. And I think it is very good that we centralize that discussion and move that to the forefront. It's very, very good. Thank you very much, Nosandu. Um, and thank, and I hope that we thank can you. use this going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you.